Hello, everyone. My name is Shannon Lee, Executive Director of Relay, and you're listening to the Slapcast. Hey, welcome to the Slapcast. This is Shannon Lee. I'm so glad that you're here. This is episode two, dos. The Slapcast is a podcast of Relay. It's all about leaders from all over the place trying to figure this thing out that we call servant leadership without taking ourselves too seriously. If you missed the first podcast, I broke down what slap means in Slapcast, so make sure you give that a listen. We're going to get to the nitty gritty here in a short time, but I want to make sure you know what SLAP stands for. It's service, love, action, and passion. Now, we would love for you to connect with us on the daily. You can do so on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. All those handles are at Relay Leadership. That's R-E-L-A Leadership. Also, we would love it if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can do that on the Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. I encourage you to share it with your friends, your coworkers. Um, hopefully, if you hear something you like, and if you don't, then you know just keep that to yourself. However, we would love to hear from you directly, and you can reach us at info at relayleadership.org. We thank you in advance for writing to us, and we'd love to answer your questions. And you can even share with us some ideas of some topics you'd like us to cover on the Slapcast. So let's roll. Okay, well, welcome everybody. Last time, if you remember, I went into more of a history and really an explanation of my own leadership journey, how that's impacted the direction of Relay and where we are today, which again is a professional development organization committing to helping as many people as possible embody servant leadership. Why? We think servant leaders are more engaged. We think they build better organizations. They are rock star people and just overall, they improve the world. We're not alone in this either, but more on that in a bit. Today, we are talking about a theme that's going to be carried through uh, to our next two speakers, I'm sorry, our next two guests, and that's on putting the caring or the love back into leadership. So in many ways, that's what servant leadership is about, and I couldn't think of a better way to say it, so that's kind of the way I'm going to put it, is like love or caring or something like that into leadership. So what is love and how does it relate to leadership? What is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Trivia to Jonathan, the producer. Who sings that song? Oh. Just because you asked me right now, I'm not going to know it. You know what? I looked it up earlier, and I cannot remember the name right now, but it was a name that was like a weird name. Yeah. Kudos to anyone who emails us at info.reallyleadership.org and has the right answer. <laughs> You get, I don't know what I'll give you. I'll give you a mention on the podcast in the future. How's that? That's, that's the best I can do. I have no money. Um, so so that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about actually that kind of love. This is not about uh, romantic love, but rather the role love plays in leadership. Now, to tee this up, I want to talk about four ways that I believe that love and caring are inextricably connected to servant leadership. The first one is a little bit about what I shared last time when I dove into our values, one of which is love. Love is actually one of our literal values. It's the L in slap. Um, I explained that love as a value is our commitment to making decisions 
both from an organizational standpoint and just how we as a team show up in the community, we make decisions from a place of love versus fear. So instead of fearing what will happen if we do this or that, we start with the thought, what is best for this person or what is best for the situation and really get intentional about that. It means that we consider all of our choices and then choose consciously. It means we don't knee jerk to avoid conversations or jump into them either without considering our own motivations first. So a lot of this has to do with just what we're motivated by. Are we motivated primarily by helping, by loving, by caring, or are we motivated by fear? So we can start here. Leadership involves making decisions from a place of love. But what else do I think that it involves? Because, you know, I'm in charge of this podcast, so it's really a lot of it's my opinion. <laughs> I believe it's a well-informed opinion um, to some degree. There's actually a lot of leader. There's actually a lot of research around this. Um, there was a book written. Uh, many of the listeners have probably heard of it. It's called Firms of Endearment. And without butchering the in- the intent of the entire book, I'm going to try to kind of summarize. Basically, these are stories of organizations who embrace a servant leadership mindset. They don't necessarily, not all the organizations don't necessarily call it that, but they embrace the concepts found in servant leadership. And what these organizations have found is some interesting stuff. Number one, it actually results in cold, hard cash. These organizations are many times in the S&P 500 or even top 100 companies. And what's amazing is that with the national average of um, employee engagement being only around 32%, so in other words, Gallup results say that only about 32% of employees are engaged at work. Around 7 17.2 are actively disengaged. About 51% are disengaged. So what's the difference between those two? The way I describe a disengaged employee is they're just like, meh, I'm coming in, I'm marking time, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. But the employer has not tapped into my discretionary effort. I'm not going to do anything over and above, right? The actively disengaged, they're actually working against you as an employer. They're working against you. And Gallup has determined that for every $10,000 in their salary, 3400 of it is wasted due to their active disengagement. Now, I'll let you do the math. In a 1,000-employee company, 17.2% people are disengaged. Do the math. That's 172 people, okay? Carry the one, whatever. Times point, 1.72. No, 0.172. 172 people are actively disengaged. If the median income for those people is $60,000, okay, that's $20,400 of their $60,000 is wasted due to their disengagement. Now, maybe that means that their active disengagement is they're late, they're not getting work done on time, whatever. There's a bunch of stuff in there. You just have to read the research. But they have determined that it's actually costing you for that $60,000 employee $20,400 a year for their active disengagement. Now, multiply that by the 172 employees that you have. That comes out to $3,500,000. It's like 580 or something like that. $3.5 million Now, I just want you to think about if you're a business owner or, or not. What could a company with a thousand people do with three and a half million dollars? 
I know what I would do. I would look at like my benefits package and see what else could we do for our people? You know, how, how could we have a better benefits package? How could we have a better leave plan or whatever? And so, but we can't because we're busy paying people not to work. And so what Firms of Endearment has, uh, this book has um, brought out, they have data now that shows that companies that embrace servant leadership actually are able to flip that script they actually only have about 32% of their employees who are actively disengaged and roughly 70% or 68% of their employees are engaged. That is insane. That breaks every national average. So love, servant leadership, this isn't just soft stuff. This is, this is serious stuff. And so it's important to understand that even though we talk about love, we talk about servant leadership, what we're talking about is something that actually results in real positive outcomes for employers. Now, the second way that a servant leader uh, can show up in love is actually, and this might seem counterintuitive, but they leave room for failure. In other words, a caring leader doesn't demand perfection and they aren't rattled by the imperfections of those that they lead. In fact, they handle the imperfections in a way that goes beyond tolerance to celebration. And I know that might sound weird, but the servant leader extends love by noticing the strengths and weaknesses of others and coming alongside and seeing those weaknesses or opportunities, as I like to say, they see the weaknesses as opportunities to help someone grow and improve. They literally look at that and go, what a great opportunity for improvement. What a great opportunity for growth. I can make an impact with this person instead of seeing them as a liability. That is how the servant leader actually celebrates the weakness or the challenges that an employee has. Now, there are times when obviously an employee, their, their opportunities or, or weaknesses are beyond help. Like sometimes there are just certain things like, I, I will never be a CPA. If you hire me at your company to be in charge of the numbers, we are having problems, okay? Now, I know enough to read my financials every month. I know enough. I can read a balance sheet. I understand cash flow basics, right? But I have, you know, our organization hires CPAs to actually manage that and inform me of things because that's not my specialty. Number one, I'm not good at it. Number two, I don't want to be good at it, okay? So maybe someone got hired that a part of their job they're not good at, they don't want to be good at, whatever. The servant leader doesn't just say, oh, well, we get rid of them, at least not in initially. Now what we do is we say, okay, maybe there is no opportunity for growth here because there's a lack of will or lack of skill or both. But is there something else where we could push on both that skill and will lever? Okay. Is that clear? Like when you go to work, there's two things at play. There's your skill level, what you're able to do. And then there's your will lever, which is what am I willing to do? And what we want to do is tap into someone's discretionary effort in their will. Because for many workers, statistically about 70%, the only reason they're coming to work is so that they can get a paycheck and pay their bills. Nothing wrong with that. We need people to come to work and we want them to be compensated. But if we want to tap into folks's, uh, to people's uh, discretionary effort, they have to be engaged in the mission of the organization. So 
Sometimes that might mean putting someone's butt in another seat. Sometimes it might mean that they're not on the bus, right? And uh, I remember Jane Grody Abel spoke for us years ago, and she said, at that point, they might need to become an alumni of our organization. And I thought that was a very kind way to think of it. So if a person can potentially move to a more appropriate role when growth is not a you know, possible in their current role, then the servant leader looks for that and sees that as an opportunity to help them to grow and develop in a different way. So why is this love? Well, first of all, it requires a tough conversation. Um, Lencioni, uh, Patrick Lencioni, who's written lots of books, not the least of which was a book about the five dysfunctions of teams. He talks about this concept of um, one of the, one of the missing factors Oh, I'm sorry, one of the five dysfunctions of teams is that there's no conflict. Now, that might sound strange at first. You might say, well, a team should not have conflict, but that's the opposite is actually true. A team that doesn't have conflict is more than likely a team who is avoiding conflict. They don't trust, another and trust each other enough to have difficult conversations. And so things get kind of brushed under the rug, nothing ever gets addressed, and you know, we kind of have the status quo thing going on. A servant leader who is acting from a position of love is not afraid. Again, they're not operating from fear. As I said in the first point, they're not afraid to have that difficult conversation with someone that maybe needs to move to another role. Maybe they need to move on from the organization or they need to work on a skill set. When love is not involved, the task is king, not the person behind the task. Now, does this mean task never Absolutely not. Stuff needs to get done. But it's the mindset that this person and their growth as a leader, that's my priority here. This person doing the task is more important than the task itself. So the next time someone doesn't perform up to the expectation, a great thing to ask is what got in your way? versus why didn't you do that? The first focus, the first question is focused on them as a person, right? What got in your way? If someone asks me what got in my way, I immediately go to the data center of my brain and I start thinking about, well, what barriers did I encounter, right? But when someone asks me, why didn't you do that? Now it becomes a part of my value. And we have to be careful as leaders to to express that, what someone does and their value as a person are not the same. And when we say, why didn't you do that? Inadvertently, we're going to go ahead and assume that this is not on purpose. Inadvertently, what we're saying is, it's like a shaming statement. You know, you are not worth, you're not worthy. You did a bad thing here. And why did you do that? Versus what, that what word, that focuses, that that causes my brain to think about data. I want to think about, okay, well, one of the things that got in my way was I didn't know who to talk to about whatever. I didn't have the correct access. I didn't have a resource or whatever. Why makes me look within, look within and now I feel like I'm being blamed for something when really maybe I had extenuating circumstances. So the second is shaming them, but the first is focused on you as a person and it honors that, it honors someone as a person, which is so important. Now, along these lines, it is caring and loving for the leader to set appropriate boundaries, which is the third example that I'd like to share. It's a loving thing to do to set boundaries. As we take into consideration the needs of others, we must not ignore our needs and the needs of the rest of the team, the rest of the company, what have you. 
there needs to be a balance. There needs to be boundaries. These are created by setting clear expectations, examples of what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. What do we want the end product to look for this project or this assignment? And then a commitment on our part to remove barriers for the employee along the way. This does not mean that we are doing the work for them. One of the criticisms that servant leadership has gotten over the years that is really misinformed is that servant leaders kind of get walked all over because they end up doing the work for their employees because that's serving their employees and nothing could be further from the truth. The servant leader does actually doesn't enable poor performance on the part of the employee. What they do is they provide resources and assistance in overcoming barriers. In other words, someone is trying to do a task. They're trying to create a report, let's say, and let's say they need some data from another department. The servant leader doesn't step in and say, I'll go get that data for you. The servant leader says, here's who you need to go talk to. Here, Go talk to Karen in accounting and she will help you. Once you contact her, if you have trouble, come back and talk to me about it and we'll figure out another way, right? So let's say the employee comes back and says, I've asked Karen three times for that data. I still haven't gotten a response from her. My next question would be, How have you contacted Karen? Have you called her? Have you emailed her? Have you walked down to her office and had a face-to-face conversation with her? I will dig in deeper to help my employee solve the problem themselves. Maybe they've only emailed. Maybe Karen's not really big with email. Maybe Karen thrives on those. Maybe she's a high communicator and she needs to communicate in person. I'll never forget one time I was following up with a, a potential sponsor of one of our events and I had emailed her and emailed her and emailed her. And this is an event that this sponsor has sponsored for probably a decade. I mean, it, I hate to say it's a given because it's never a given until they say, yeah, we're going to sponsor. But I was shocked that I hadn't heard from her. And it was just a few weeks before the event. And I had a voicemail on my phone from this person. And she said, hey, Shannon, I just... I don't know how, but I missed your emails. I want you to know that I get literally hundreds of emails a day. And if ever you email me a couple times and you don't hear from me, please pick up the phone because that is the best way for me to communicate. That is the best way to get my attention. Now, all along, I was like, she's ignoring me. Why is she ignoring me? And I'm like starting to get a little like not mad at her, but just sort of feeling like, oh, you know, they're not going to sponsor. They don't like us or whatever. When in actuality... I needed to change my communication method. I needed to try some other methods. And when I did that, literally, we connected that day. I called her right back and said, I'm sorry. I would definitely call you from now on. I'll even make a note of it. And uh, they sponsored the event like they always do. She felt horribly that she hadn't gotten back to me, but it was great. We were able to figure that out. And so she, in essence, did a loving thing. She set kind of a boundary or an expectation saying, listen, Emails are great, but if you don't hear from me, this is the next step. So if I have an employee that's having trouble getting data or information or connecting with another department, let's say they need you know cross-departmental help, that's going to be my first question. How have you communicated them? What have you communicated? Maybe they need assistance in their communication. And this is just one example. So it's my job to coach them through that process, not to go do the work for them. So as I said, we don't show love by enabling that lack of productivity necessarily, or by picking up and working the, doing the work for them. But we show love by upholding the standard of excellence that we've set forth. Now, don't hear perfection in that word excellence. I, I hear a lot of people 
use the word excellence and what they really mean is some super high standard that is not attainable, okay? We can have a standard of excellence, but also leave room for failure, as I said in point two, where we're not expecting perfection, which is not possible because anyway, everybody's opinion of perfection is different, right? What I think is perfect is is different than probably my supervisor's definition of perfect. But through accountability, so we uphold these standards of excellence through accountability. Now, one of the ways, one of the best ways we can do that is by over-communicating on the front end. This is going to seem overly simplistic, but I know I have missed the mark on this many times in my experience as a leader, and I've had many leaders not do this for me, so I know it's common. And I've had great leaders that I've worked for not do this for me, and that is this. When you need to delegate something or give someone a task, a project, explaining the who, who is involved, and the person I'm giving this to, they are part of that who. The what, what do I want? What does it look like as a success? Like, what's a success? What's a win in this project? When, when is it due? When am I going to be checking in? When do I want you to give me updates? All of the wins. The why. The why is what gets left out more often than not. The why provides the context. It gives the person meaning for the task or the project, right? If we go to someone and say, I need you to do this, this, and this, and they don't understand the why, they are going to be disengaged. Why? because they're not understanding why it's important. So when we tell the why, we want to explain how it's related to their job. We want to explain why it's important to us as the leader and what it is accomplishing for the organization. It's an opportunity to align them to that higher purpose in delegation. When we fail to give the why and give the context, we miss an amazing opportunity to connect with our employees and to align them to our higher purpose. And then the last thing we need to make sure we, we provide, it's not a W, it's an R, and that's resources. So we don't hand them the resources on a silver platter, but we make sure that they at least understand what resources are involved. So here's what I mean. We give someone a project. Are we sure that the person we've delegated this to understands that the project's going to involve them collaborating with, I'm just making this up, accounting, marketing, PR, and, you know... HR. Do we know that they know? Because we assume a lot. We we see a much bigger picture as leaders, and we assume that other people see that big picture too, and that they're connecting those dots. But let me tell you something: they are not. Now, this is not a criticism. This is not because they're they're not intelligent or anything like that. It's because they're not as close to it as we are. There's a, a book out there called The Curse of Knowing. And it's just what it sounds like. Once you know a thing, you can't unknow it. And so it's hard for you to put yourself in the position of remembering what it was like to not know it. And so when we give someone a task, okay, and we set expectations and we set boundaries for that task, we forget that they don't know the things that we know. We don't, we don't actually think, oh, Like to us, it's obvious, well, of course you need to involve marketing in this, but that person, it may not be obvious to them, 
they may be thinking they need to do it all themselves. And so then they bring you this finished product and it's not what you imagined, right? So number one, you got to make sure they know what resources are involved. And then you want to make sure it's kind of a double back on the who, who in those departments or who of those resources, even if it's an outside vendor, who do they contact, right? Because without that information, that becomes a barrier, Now, I know the argument is, well, if they come up against that, they need to come back and ask me. Yeah, I think that's true. They should ask for clarification. However, a lot of employees, their greatest desire and motivation is to please. And many times they associate asking additional questions with not having, like they see it as a weakness, and so why we want to, we want to foster a trusting environment so that they feel they can come to us and ask questions. One of the ways we can foster that is by providing a lot of this information up front and then saying, now listen, if there's anything else that you feel like I've left out, if there's any question you have, I want you to come to me. There is no silly question. There's no stupid question. I want you to come to me. Okay. Because if not, they're there are all of us are pleasers. We want our bosses to feel that we're doing a good job. We want to keep our job. There's a strong, you know, financial motivator there. There's an ego motivator. All these things are good. But it's also a double-edged sword. It's what keeps us as employees from asking those questions because we don't want to be seen as incompetent. And so we want to make sure we keep those lines of communication open so that as we create these boundaries, and set appropriate expectations that we're also giving them what they need in order to accomplish those tasks. This leads me to the fourth way that I believe that leadership is love, and that is rigorous honesty. Even in the face of disagreement, conflict avoidance is basically, it's essentially passive aggressive behavior. So at its core, it's selfishly motivated. And here's why I say that. We may say we're avoiding conflict because we are afraid of another person's reaction. Like, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. Well, if if I say that, then, you know, she's not going to want to do this project or whatever. But in reality, what's really happening, if we are brutally honest with ourselves, is that we don't want to experience the discomfort of the confrontation. So we avoid it. This is completely selfishly motivated and it's rooted, again, in fear. I'll even go a step further and say that it's manipulative. Avoidance behavior is rooted in manipulation. Why? Because it's from this belief that if I do or don't do something, I can control the way that you react. So if I say, okay, I'm going to talk to my producer right now, Jonathan. If I say, well, I don't want to tell Jonathan I don't like how that podcast turned out because I'm afraid he won't do this anymore for me. Okay? I'm not afraid of that, but... I'm I'm very direct person. Um, but we've had a longstanding friendship and we've built trust, right? So you have to have some perceptive trust here, right? You can only, your experience with someone, your trust only goes that far. So you have to remember that. If I say that, what I'm really saying is I'm avoiding the discomfort of telling Jonathan how I really feel. And in order to control his reaction, I'm going to withhold that truth from him. That's why I say that this kind of behavior, that the lack of rigorous honesty is actually a manipulative behavior. It's not motivated from love. It's such a strong temptation. We want to make work relationships work by skirting honesty. We truly believe that if we withhold honesty, things would just be better. We could just, well, let's just avoid that, right? 
Now, I do believe that in sharing our, our truth and sharing the honesty that how matters, right? The way we say something matters. Now, I can be a total jerk when I tell Jonathan I'm unhappy with something, right? I could say, you know what, Jonathan, that the production on the podcast sucked. I heard all kinds of background noise. You do not know what you're doing. And, you know, if you, and then I throw in a threat, right? Because I, I'm an extra afraid leader and I don't know how to lead without instilling fear in people because I'm, I, you know, I'm power over. So I say, I, I finish it off with, with the gauntlet. I say, and if you don't get it together, I'm going to find someone else to do this. I once had a leader tell me, I think they thought it was going to motivate me. All it did was demotivate me. She said, I want you to know that because of this, you're on the bubble. Now, here's what on the bubble meant. It meant you're on the verge of really getting in trouble. It's like this vague threat, right? And I think it was meant to scare me. But all it did was cause me to be more disengaged. It did scare me. But what it did was it made me afraid to innovate. I was afraid to get creative because I was on the bubble after all. <laughs> I mean, bubbles are... are, are um, sensitive, right? They pop easily in my experience, you know? And so I was afraid to make any kind of move. And so what I ended up doing was making more mistakes. And so this fear that we instill in people, this manipulation actually works against what we actually want. But here's the thing. If you're in a conversation with someone that you work with or that you work for, and you've tried to express your truth to them, but there's about five to 10% that you're holding back it's probably that 5 to 10% that you really need to share that will create the most meaningful breakthrough in that work relationship. And to withhold it from someone is robbing them the opportunity to grow, and it's causing you to be intellectually dishonest with them, right? You're saying one thing, but the real truth you're holding back. And in the end, even if they don't agree, trust will grow. So I encourage you to practice rigorous honesty with those that work for you because it will build trust. Not everyone's going to like your rigorous honesty. Not everyone's going to like to hear. Now, what would be a better way for me to talk to Jonathan? I could say, you know, Jonathan, I was listening to the podcast. I was wondering if next time we could work on these three things. That sounds like I'm partnering with someone. We are in this together versus you did this wrong. You got to fix it or else, Right. I'm still communicating something that I need done. I'm in essence communicating that what was done probably didn't meet my expectations, but I didn't have to say it like that. He knows. I'm not withholding. I'm, I'm being honest. You know what? On that podcast, I noticed there was some background noise. Do you think next time, what should we do differently next time to improve upon that? Right? I'm communicating that I want it to improve. I'm being honest. Right? I think some people revel in being so direct and mean to people that it's like, well, I'm just being honest. It's just how I am. Come on. You're being a jerk. I'm direct. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're just being mean. You're just a meanie. You don't need to be mean. That, that is simply people who have to be mean when they lead are truly insecure. They're truly, truly insecure. And they're full of fear because they're afraid of how the other person's going to react. So they actually overreact and it. They know it's going to paralyze the other person. Now, these four Oh my gosh, these are not exhaustive. And we have two guests coming in the, in the next few weeks here are going to actually talk more about uh, caring leadership, loving leadership. Um, one of them um, is Scott Monroe. He's our next 
speaker. Um, he's our next guest on the Slapcast, and he's the chief brand officer at 31 Gives. He's going to break down his take on this subject as well. And then after that, we're going to talk to Chris McAllister of, of SightShift um, towards the end of March. And, you know, I really feel like um, these, probably March, no, I'm sorry, he's going to be in April, my fault. And so, you know, these two fellows are going to really break down in totally different ways um, how leadership is love and how caring leadership is really the way we need to show up. So now, before I forget, um, I, I just invite everybody to follow us on social media, to subscribe to this podcast. Um, we would love to hear from you at info at relayleadership.org. Again, all of our handles, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Yes, we have an Instagram. We are at relayleadership.org. That's R-E-L-A. I'm sorry, that's the website. <laughs> our handles for social media is at Really Leadership. That's R-E-L-A Leadership, okay? All right, thank you guys so much. We look forward to uh, talking with you next time on the Slapcast. <laughs>